Hello, and welcome to episode three of Fact or Fiction, a new podcast series we're hosting here at the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame. My name's Ted Barron. I'm the executive director at the DeBartolo Center. I'm also teaching a class on documentary film this semester that focuses on the boundaries of documentary. I call it documentary fact or fiction. And the idea of the course is to look at films that challenge conventional notions about what documentary is and really question how we accept certain modes of documentary filmmaking as truthful when, in fact, um, we should maybe look at them more critically. And this week's film for episode three is a really great example of a film kind of pushing against those conventional ideas of documentary film. The title is not an easy one to say, uh, but hopefully one to remember. Symbiopsychotaxiplasm, Take One, which was directed by William Greaves. It came out in 1968 and marks a really fascinating turn in a career for a filmmaker who had quite an amazing background uh, before he came to this project. So William Greaves was someone who actually has so many different credentials uh, that we can note. Um, He actually started out as an engineering student when he was younger, uh, grew up in the New York area, and eventually started to become interested in acting. And so he took classes and eventually performed with the American Negro Theater. While he was doing this, he also developed skill as a songwriter, writing songs for Eartha Kitt, um, among many others and really established himself as someone with just a a set of creative tools that were just really unique among his peers. Uh, But largely, this was kind of relegated to a kind of black art scene in um, the the early early 1940s. Um, He was eventually um, able to establish a career as an actor, but very much limited to what was then known as a black film circuit, appearing in a series of race films, which were low-budget films that were produced, directed, written um, by black artists, uh, cast with black actors, and mostly screened in segregated black theaters. So really, the, the, the impact of his kind of creative uh, talents uh, was, was, was largely limited to the black community. Um, things started to change for him when he enrolled in the, in the very famous Actors Studio, where he developed uh, relationships with many notable actors, including Marlon Brando. And that opened up some opportunities for him to start to be cast in, uh, in some Hollywood films, uh, but really in limited capacities, mostly in supporting roles that, that weren't particularly significant. So he had a hard time kind of making a living as an actor, as many do, uh, but in part because uh, as, a, as a black artist, uh, Greaves found that there were much, much more severe limitations. So he, he um, started to, as, as he developed as an actor, he started to also become interested in the filmmaking process and um, saw that there was more opportunity north of the border in Canada um, where there was there, where the the issues around racism, while still prevalent, weren't quite as restrictive as they were in the U.S. And so he went to work for what was uh, known as the Candid Eye Unit of the National Film Board of Canada, which was under the directing direction of Wolf Koenig. 
Um, the candid eye unit is kind of closely associated with something I've talked about in, in our previous podcasts, which is the emergence of the direct cinema movement, uh, the direct cinema movement being a kind of observational approach to documentary filmmaking. I, I got into this in a little bit of detail in our episode on Chronicle of a Summer, where we made the distinctions between uh, a more participatory approach that uh, Jean Rouche used in that film versus the observational approach, which was that that kind of fly on the wall, filming things as if you know you're not really there as a filmmaker and trying not to intervene uh, with your subjects. So one of his more notable works was a short film uh, that he directed titled Emergency Ward, which just um, followed kind of the goings on in a Canadian hospital um, and just seeing kind of patients coming in and out, doctors at work. Um, and, and, you know, with hospitals being what they are, uh, provided a great platform for a really kind of um, interesting piece where there's just a lot of activity uh, within the film. Uh, the film was notable, for, among other things, because it attracted the attention of Shirley Clark, um, who I mentioned last week as the director of Portrait of Jason. Shirley Clark at that point was working with the U.S. Office of Information and um, lobbied for Greaves to actually come work for them, so provided an opportunity for him to come back uh, to the U.S. and um, and make films for uh, for this organization. So the USIA um, was a place where Greaves really was able to develop his skills as a filmmaker even further with essentially commissioned projects, assignments, um, to to create to direct films under under that aegis, but that also gave him the resources to start up his own production company, and through his own production company, he shifted the content of of the films that he was making. Although he was still more or less working in a in a more conventional kind of documentary mode, um, but these were films that focused on um, black culture and black history, uh, notably uh, directing films on on uh, famous individuals like Ida B. Wells and Ralph Bunchy, among, among others. Later on in his career, he would become a host of the PBS series Black Journal, uh, which was one of the first PBS series uh, to actually look very closely at African-American society, um, whether it was current events or just uh, or, uh, cultural um, figures, um, different different areas of, of, of concern. Um, he became the host of the PBS series Black Journal, uh, which is probably better known to audiences as uh, Tony Brown's Black Journal, which was a long-running series on PBS, which addressed issues in uh, African-American society, whether it was politics or uh, culture, um, science, uh, you know, various, various topics, uh, long-running series. But uh, uh, for, for a brief period in the late 1960s and early 1970s, Greaves served as a uh, uh, producer for the show and also host, and he won an Emmy Award for his uh, for his work during that time. But while he was doing all of this um, in in these sort of more mainstream, we would call them, or maybe mainstream is not the right word, but but more traditional style of of productions, whether it's you know uh, television production for PBS or um, some of the the more independent documentaries that he was producing through his own production company, he also wanted to to get a little strange and, and do some uh, and, and kind of find some ways to experiment uh, with filmmaking, and that really took shape 
with his 1968 film, Symbiopsychotaxiplasm, Take One. So this project came out of Greaves's interest in kind of exploring elements of conflict. Of course, the 1960s are noted as a very divisive period in American history where there's racial conflict, there's conflict over the war in Vietnam, uh, there's, there's class conflict, there's just, there's a lot of different ways in which, you know, society is seen as kind of breaking apart, 1968 being a very pivotal year um, in this regard. Um, but he was actually interested in seeing if he could make a film which would kind of demonstrate uh, what conflict is, not by just simply documenting, you know, uh, protests or rallies or anything along those lines, but to actually create conflict through his, his filmmaking process. He was inspired by the writings of philosopher and social scientist Arthur Bentley, who talked about something called symbiotaxiplasm, which Greaves d- describes as all those events which transpire in any given environment on which a human being impacts in any way. He uh, decided to add the term psycho uh, to symbiotaxiplasm to create symbiopsychotaxiplasm because he wanted to make sure that um, the concepts of human psychology were included in this. And so since Bentley talks about this as kind of uh, something that you can you could really if you focus on a specific location where events are unfolding, um, you can you can draw out um, this this dynamic of how human subjects kind of have an impact on their environment. And what Greaves saw as the ideal place to do this was Central Park in New York, where um, there was always a lot of activity and a lot of interesting things going on. So that was uh, the basis for a film that he originally titled Off the Cliff, uh, and he planned in his original process to do multiple takes of the film. So the title, Symbiopsychotaxiplasm Take One, was the original title for the, well, not the original title, Off the Cliff was the original title, but he came up with this Take One concept because he had hoped to make a series of five films over a period of a few years in which he would explore different elements of, of conflict. He also describes it as kind of a psychological version of uh, what's known as the Heisenberg principle, which is uh, which comes from the sciences. Um, interestingly, going back to his early days as you know an engineering um, student, and what the Heisenberg, Heisenberg principle suggests is that anytime uh, 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 anytime you observe reality, you alter it. So very much a, a, a concern. Uh, when we're thinking about this film relative to Greaves' own early work with the National Film Board of Canada, where he was working in that kind of direct cinema, fly-on-the-wall mode of of documentary filmmaking, and to try to find a way to um, kind of respond to that and to come up with something new. So if we we try to historicize this, uh, we can put this film alongside Portrait of Jason, the film I talked about in our last episode, and another film, which is not part of this series, but I highly recommend it, uh, which is titled David Holtzman's Diary. Um, in, in all three of these films, uh, we see a reaction to, the, to this kind of dominance of, uh, of observational documentary filmmaking in films like Primary and the um, documentary about Bob Dylan, Don't Look Back, uh, which were you know, considered some of the more notable achievements in, in 1960s American documentary filmmaking. Um, but in the case of Greaves, he didn't just simply want to kind of challenge or dismantle uh, that direct cinema approach. He was actually looking to kind of create a new form. So how did he go about doing it? Well, what he does in the film 
is he sets up a scene where um, a couple is walking through Central Park and they're having an argument. And the argument is um, kind of hard to listen to at times. Uh, The dialogue that we hear them speaking um, really seems kind of inane. And um, it sometimes it goes from sort of really boring to really inflammatory. And in the process of making this, we see uh, we see the film that he the, the scene that he is shooting, which is the couple performing. But then he also chose to have a second crew film him while he's directing the scene. So we actually see that filmmaking process while the scene is unfolding. And what he does is he sets up uh, graphically um, a a series of split-screen images. So you can actually see the couple acting, and you can see him filming. And then he had another crew that was just filming people watching what they were doing in Central Park. Some of that crew overlaps with the crew that was filming him um, as he's directing the scene. But so we have multiple kind of lenses on this going on. We have the we have the actual scene. We have the director and his crew, you know, setting up the scene and, and you know, making decisions about, um, you know, camera positions and, um, you know, locations, et cetera. And then we have bystanders that are kind of watching. Uh, watching the whole process unfold. We see just people kind of strolling through the park. We see police uh, officers riding horses, uh, riding on horseback, Um, various people just kind of taking account of the goings-on. Then the really interesting piece, which is something that Greaves was really excited about, is that there's a kind of mini revolt because as the crew is going through this process— of watching Greaves film this film, this scene, they're becoming increasingly frustrated with him. He's very indecisive. He sort of gives strange directions to the actors. He gives he gives strange directions to the other crew members. And it seems like he just he just doesn't know what he's doing. So the crew eventually decides to kind of break away and sort of hide from Greaves and film themselves talking about this film. As it's being as it's being made, and and so you get this other lens uh, on the act on the actions that are taking place. And what he does is he kind of combines these different elements together. So we get this film that's coming from from all different angles. And um, it's interesting that you know what Greaves had set out to do was to try to create a sense of conflict, and and was quite successful because the crew ultimately reacts to his process by sort of pulling themselves out of it, or at least they still go along with his filming, but they, um, you know, raise so many questions about what it is that he's doing. And eventually they, they sort of get back together and they talk to him about it and he reveals some of his process as it's unfolding. Uh, but it's interesting because uh, we have this, you know, issue of, you know, a crew, the divide between the director and the crew being very significant, but also add into this. Um, questions around racial difference. Greaves, as a black filmmaker, working with a predominantly white crew, um, you know, raises some questions about, you know, how does how does this white crew evaluate this black director's ability to to film the scene? Um, so while it's not, you know, of course, there's nothing stated overtly within within that. There's a notable racial difference in that in those different framings. Um, Another just kind of uh, in terms of some of the content of the film, you know, Greaves had a lot of connections with different artists and and performers, uh, and he was able to get Miles Davis um, to allow him to use uh, his his music from In a Silent Way as a kind of soundtrack for the film, which makes a really 
a kind of smooth bridge between um, some of the different scenes that we see. So in terms of influences, you know, he's really, I mean, again, he's trying to innovate. He's trying to do something completely new. But he's also in dialogue with the direct cinema filmmakers. He's not using techniques from direct cinema, uh, but he's definitely, um, you know, making something that that is that we can see as a as a, a, a response to that particular approach to filmmaking. So, you know, and when we get to the question of kind of what's factual and what's fiction, it's really, you know, how much is Greaves performing to really provoke these reactions? Um, is he, you know, is he really that indecisive? Is he really that bad of a director? If we, you know, historically look at his accomplishments as a filmmaker, he clearly knew what he was doing throughout his career. Um, but but so much of this um, kind of performance of Greaves as the bad director um, seems to be something that we can you know kind of recognize as as not something that happened organically in the filmmaking process. But yet the the conflict that arises is is uh, a, a result of that of that conflict. So it's an interesting kind of fuzzy area between you know something factual, which is you know this genuine reaction of the crew toward this kind of performed ineptitude, which is just really wonderful to watch. And again, we, we have to look back to Greaves as an actor um, who is very charming, very, you know, very engaging as a presence. So while the film is just, you know, at times really confusing and you're sort of not sure where it's going, he actually kind of, he's, he's, some, he's a presence within the film that's, a, that's quite, uh, he's very charismatic and just, and just great to watch. So in terms of impact, um, the film itself was never properly released uh, during its time. Um, there were some, there were some uh, you know, kind of advanced screenings, but it, never, it was never moved forward, and it eventually the project was shelved. And, and there were a series of you know, maybe small screenings at museums or other kind of specialty kind of cinematechs, but largely the film was, was unknown for many, many years. And it wasn't until uh, 1992 that the film was revived at the Sundance Film Festival that it started to have a kind of second life. Um, so uh, Steven Soderbergh and Steve Buscemi were at, in attendance at that screening in 1992 and became real champions of the work. And it took a while, but eventually they were able to help fund a re-release of the film in 2005. This is when I uh, first discovered the film as a, as a film programmer. And I was very fortunate to host uh, Greaves for um, screenings in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I, I will say, you know, unabashedly that he was one of my very favorite guests. He's just, an, you know, not only is he this incredibly charismatic presence on, on film, but uh, just a really, a, a really great person to, to spend some time with. Um, one of the things that he that that re-released it is it, it it sort of reignited the project. So the the five takes that he was originally set to setting out to do, um, he kind of goes back to that. So uh, the the second film that comes out that eventually comes out in two thousand six is Symbiopsychotaxiplasm Take Two and a Half, um, and it's two and a half because essentially what you have is footage from. Uh, the end of Symbiopsychotaxiplasm Take One, uh, we see you know a young a, a, a different couple performing the same scene that we had seen you know reenacted or, uh, or acted out uh, over and over again in uh, Take One. Um, but then he followed he we we cut to a period you know almost um, you know thirty years later 
where um, this couple tries to kind of reenact uh, those earlier scenes. And again, Greaves now as, you know, an elder statesman uh, is is trying to provoke his crew to do kind of what they had done in 1968. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't work. Um, the crew is really not provoked by um, by by the actions they 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 as they're being interviewed they just talk about well we're you know we've been hired for this project we're going to do what the director asks us to do um, and one can see that as perhaps you know kind of a death of the spirit of the '60s you know when when people were more um, kind of radicalized and um, kind of pushed into action. Um, or it just kind of shows a more, you know, more of a sense of the, the industry itself being uh, much more of an establishment than it was than it was in 1968. Uh, but whatever the whatever the reason, the crew just doesn't really react to it. They just they just do what he asks, and there's no effort to, you know, kind of sabotage the project. There's no effort to go off and kind of talk about, you know, how Greaves doesn't know what he's doing. The other thing is that the um, one of the dynamics that really works really well in the film is there is is the way um, the the, the process of the film unfolding involves an, an engagement with um, onlookers in Central Park. And as they're filming in the present day or, you know, the present day of, you know, circa, well, eventually the film's released in 2006, um, the onlookers just don't really seem to care what's going on. So there's almost a kind of a, an acceptance that, yeah, you're going to walk through Central Park and there might be some weird film that's being <laughs> that's being directed and nothing's nothing's really going to come of it. Um both Symbiopsychotaxiplasm Take One and Take Two and a Half are available uh, as a as a package through the Criterion Collection. So if you ever want to see these films, of course, uh, I encourage you to see them in your local theater, places like the Browning Cinema at the DeBartle Performing Arts Center. But you can also see those uh, those uh, films together to kind of get a, the full scope of the project, uh, thanks to a really wonderful. Um, uh, reissue of the pieces through the Criterion Collection. So, you know, what's the the longer term impact of the film? One of the things that I found particularly fascinating about Greaves and what he does within the film is that he really highlights this element of performance in documentary. If we think about, you know, how we consider documentary, the notion of somebody performing in documentary, unless we were watching, you know, maybe a documentary about a concert or a stage play, the notion of performance would almost seem antithetical because performance suggests that the subjects that are being filmed are not being themselves. They're, they're putting on a role. And Greaves intentionally kind of uh, pushes this notion of performance. And while, you know, he does things within the film that, um, that highlight uh, his, the more performative elements that he brings to the project, he really raises questions about you know, how any documentary subject uh, might be performing, and which kind of goes back to this notion of the Heisenberg principle and that, you know, if, if we're filming a human subject, how much is their behavior affected by the fact that they, you know, their, their awareness of being filmed in that process. But also just thinking about uh, questions around, you know, the role of the director and, and, and how much authority we ascribe to directors in these processes. Greaves um, intentionally tries to undermine uh, that directorial authority and uh, with, with really fascinating results. Uh, William Greaves passed away in 2014 um, and uh, is survived by his wife, uh, Louise Archambault Greaves, who is actually very central to his work and uh, has actually helped um, more audiences to discover his work and, and to make not only these films available, the Symbiopsychotaxiplasm films, but other 
works from his uh, incredibly prolific career. So if you actually look back and see, you know, all of the documentary pieces that he directed over the years, it's it's a pretty remarkable feat. So that's Symbiopsychotaxiplasm Take One. Uh, we'll be back with our next episode where we continue our exploration of documentary fact or fiction. <laughs>